Let me pray as we get started. Father, I pray that during this time you would open our eyes to who you are, that you would open our eyes to this world, that you would open our eyes to uh, the work that you are doing in and through us. And in opening our eyes, continue to form us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about money. (laughs) Money, of course, becomes this thing that shows our our values, where we spend our money, uh, shows kind of what we're about, those sorts of things, uh, shows what we desire uh, as we save up money and choose where and how to spend it. But actually, where I want to start today is not talking about uh, how we spend money, but actually what's on money and money itself. Here's a dollar bill. I think we also have a dollar bill on the screen uh, in case you don't have one in your pocket. On the front of a dollar bill is uh, George Washington. And as you know, um, on the front of most of our many, most of our money uh, are pictures of old white men. Um, this is nothing against old white men. I aspire one day to be an old white man uh, if I eat well and do, do things right. Uh, but again, money and how money is designed shows some of what we value in culture. And so this, this $1 bill that I had in my pocket, uh, it's very black and white. It kind of says, hey, we're serious as a culture, different things like that. Again, shows who has power in our culture generally, old white men. Uh, this dollar bill also has some in ink, the number 43 and 55 written on my dollar bill. That's not on the screen. Um, but that's just a special gift for me. On the back of the dollar bill, as you can see, is the Great Seal of the U.S. And on one part of the Great Seal, there's an eagle, and the eagle is holding uh, uh, olives in one talon, and in the other talon, a grip of arrows, and the arrows are supposed to signify that the U.S. is ready to fight. Uh, The olives are supposed to signify that the U.S. also wants peace. Not sure how those go together, but uh, that's how the Great Seal is designed. On the other part of the Great Seal, of course, there's a half-built pyramid with an eye floating over it. Because what's, what says America like a half-built pyramid with an eye floating over it? And the idea behind this is pyramid is stable. And if you grew up in American schools, you heard again and again this idea of, oh, America's this great experiment. And it's only, you know, this idea that, hey, we get to continue to experiment and build America and all of those sorts of things. The half-built pyramid is pointing towards that. And the eye floating over it is this eye of providence. And so uh, that's the U.S., what the U.S. dollar looks like. And on the U.S. dollar, of course, is like there's all sorts of values of our society embedded within that design of the U.S. dollar. All sorts of things that say, oh yeah, we we all either are swimming in this or have heard of this or are familiar with this. 
My family and I went to Costa Rica this summer. And Costa Rica is, uh, we'll just say they're kicking our butts in a few areas. One area is fruit juice. Uh, Costa Rica, if you have orange juice here, you're like, yeah, that's nice. If you have orange juice in Costa Rica, all of a sudden it's like somehow they took an orange and they're like juicing it in my mouth. This is incredible. Like I love, I love the Costa Rica fruit juice. It tastes entirely different. The other place where Costa Rica is kicking our butts is how they design their money. In my right hand is a 2,000 colone, colones uh, bill. Uh, don't get your hopes up. This is worth about $4. Um, but uh, the colone is the uh, base unit of Costa Rican currency. And immediately, yeah, we have it up on the screens as well. It's blue. And so it's, well, now we're not just in black and kind of shades of green. So now all of a sudden there's more life to this. Uh, and you can see on there, there's, a, there's an orange starfish, there's this yellow coral behind it, uh, some green seaweed, that sort of thing. And of course, right in the middle of Costa Rican, their 2,000 colones bill, is a shark. <laughs> like, that is cool. And then over on the, um, the right side, and you can see it a little as I hold it up here as well, there's a window. Now... Uh, this feels a little to me like the bill I would have designed in third grade. Like, oh, what's the coolest way, what's the coolest bill you can make? I'm like, I'll put a shark on it, I'll put a window in it, nobody else will have a bill like this. And so Costa Rica, though, some of what they're doing with their money is you can also see what they value. And a full 25% of Costa Rican land is actually protected. It's protected by national parks, uh, protected in other ways. And so most Costa Rican bills have animals on them. And they've got monkeys and sloths and all these different things. Of course, the shark is the coolest. But nonetheless, uh, the way the money is designed shows the values of the society. Money, of course, in many ways, it connects us. Money, it's this powerful and useful tool. And so I can go and I can, I can go spend some time at my job and they pay me money for that. Uh, and then I'm able to build connections like with an Etsy seller and an artisan in California and give her money for something I want to buy and give to my family. If we had a bartering society, all of a sudden that stuff gets a lot more difficult, right? Money creates sophisticated connections within our society and within our system. It helps connect us. It's a tool that does that. Of course, money also divides us. And we know this, and we feel it, and we see the way that some people are after money, and we have these complicated relationships with it. I think of when my grandparents uh, passed away on one side of my family, and things quickly turned sideways with the generation above me. And there's, there's questions of how are we going to divide up the estate and all of these sorts of things. And then instantly finger pointing of like, hey, you're after more money. And people are like, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
those sorts of things, money can quickly divide us. It's a tool that both connects and divides us. I want to start as we dip into the Bible today in Genesis chapter 4. And as, as Ryan said, we're going through a lot. We're going to start in Genesis 4, and we're going to end in Revelation 18. But starting in Genesis 4, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And this is a story about Cain. If you remember the story of Cain, Cain had a brother, Abel, and Cain killed his brother, Abel. And then after that, God said, God came down and said, Cain, uh, you are going to be a wanderer on this earth. And Cain said, oh, that's a terrible punishment. Somebody could see me and kill me. And then God said, I will put a mark on you, Cain. Uh, and if anyone kills you, he or she will have vengeance seven times over. And what we see in this little story here is God is both giving Cain, as, as a kind father, giving Cain some of the consequences of his actions and yet also giving him divine grace and protection in the midst of it. It's a really fascinating story. And, and, but we're going to pick it up just after that uh, in Genesis 4.17. And it says, uh, we're jumping right in. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. So Cain now gets a wife, builds a city. And a city in Hebrew language is basically a group of small houses, that sort of thing, with a wall around it. So group of houses with a wall. Cain builds a city, builds houses, puts a wall around it, uh, and is starting to create now this system, this society of connections, right? To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Uh, I'm sure I pronounced all those exactly correctly. So if we, again, tying to the story, before Cain were Adam and Eve... And Adam and Eve were given this commandment to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. And now we see this happening. Like Cain's building a city and he's multiplying and the earth is getting filled. And, and, and this is a good thing. This is what God has commanded his people to do. Multiplying and filling the earth, however, doesn't just mean like fill it up with people. It also means to like unlock the potential of the earth. Like how can we take uh, how can we take wood and make it into good things like a couch or, or different things? How can we start to unlock the potential of the earth here? And the story goes on. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. So often when I read passages like this, I'm just like, yep, got it, got it, let's go. Like, where's the good stuff, right? But what we have here is, 
is this idea that the earth is getting filled up and that the potential is starting to be realized. Now we've got livestock, and with livestock, uh, as you're raising livestock and living in tents, now there's a lot more possibility. You can get milk, you can get steaks, you can get leather, all sorts of good stuff that are, that are coming from livestock. We've got stringed instruments and pipes. Now there's suddenly music bursting onto the scene. And so we see the earth is getting filled up with good things. Uh, we've got tools out of bronze and iron for people to use and, and harness and pull out even more potential out of creation. And so we're seeing here that Cain has built a city and good things are coming out of it. It is not necessarily what we expected. But in the next verse, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Just like Cain, Lamech has killed someone. We see violence again breaking in. And just like the city and system allowed good to come out and actually good to multiply and spring forth and overflow, now we see violence multiplying and overflowing. Cain was avenged seven times. Lamech will be avenged 77 times. I will keep peace through the threat of violence. We see this in the first city, in the first system and society that gets built. The possibility for good to multiply and the possibility for bad and evil to multiply. In the story of the Bible, we see cities again and again springing up. And, and in the biblical imagination, there's kind of two cities that, that signify both good and bad. Jerusalem was meant to signify good and be the city where God dwelt and good would multiply and overflow out of it into other places as God calls the Israelites and establishes them. But the biggest, baddest city in the Bible was Babylon. It's so, so big and bad in the Bible that we still, when we hear this word Babylon, it captures our imagination. We're like, oh yeah, Babylon. I've heard something about that. Babylon signifies accumulation and excess and power and violence. And it did in the Bible and it does for us today. And in the, in the biblical story, the people of Jerusalem, they're supposed to multiply and, and goodness is supposed to flow out of that but it doesn't happen. And so God allows the city of Babylon and their army to march over to Jerusalem and defeat it. And not only that, but the Babylonian army is like, we're gonna grab a bunch of your top folks and we're going to take them into exile. We're going to take them back to Babylon. And so now these people are like, okay, uh, we've got these people who want to follow God. They know it didn't work out in Jerusalem. They're sad. Now they're in exile in Babylon, and they're asking this question. What does it look like to follow God in a city that desires accumulation 
and excess and violence and power? Fortunately, it's a question we never have to ask. <laughs> That's sarcasm. Thank you, Kurt. Yes. <laughs> and, and they come up with a variety of answers. But one of the answers, as you know, that they come up with is writing apocalyptic literature, writing these crazy poems about beasts and monsters and all this stuff is, that is happening. And, and so often when we hear the word, okay, apocalyptic, what that means is like, okay, here's what's going to happen someday, and it's going to be crazy, and there's going to be war and violence and all of those sorts of things. And there's certainly truth to that. Ap apocalyptic does point to God bringing judgment someday. But apocalyptic literature always is meant to unmask what is happening today. Apocalyptic literature unmasks what is happening in society today. And so as these Israelites were in Babylon and these scribes were writing down stories and poems and different things in Babylon and, and back outside of Babylon, we see all of this apocalyptic literature, all of these crazy poems coming out of that time. I want to read one specifically to you, and this is in Jeremiah 51. Uh, Jeremiah actually was not taken to Babylon. He's got a crazy story. He was kidnapped and taken down to Egypt, and all of these, all of these crazy things happened to him. And in Jeremiah 51, he's talking about Babylon and what's going on in Babylon. Now remember, Babylon, biggest, baddest city Wealthy, powerful, strong, all of those sorts of things. And here is what Jeremiah says about these people. This is 51, starting in verse 38. Her people all roar like young lions. They growl like lion cubs. But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. So this idea of there is going to be on the biggest, baddest city in the world, God is saying, no, 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 no. Their power is not the ultimate power. And we'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. How Shishak, Shishak is another word for Babylon, will be captured. The boast of the whole earth seized. How desolate Babylon will be among the nations. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Her towns will be desolate. A dry and desert land. A land where no one lives through which no one travels. I will punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him, and the wall of Babylon will fall. And so we've got this imagery of, hey, the seas coming over it. The poet's kind of mixing metaphors here, which we don't like as much in English, but in Hebrew poetry is very much encouraged. Sea coming over it, and there's a desert uh, at the same time, these sorts of things, showing uh, the desolation of Babylon. And so this poem is meant to say, hey, Israelites, people who are trying to follow God in this place, Babylon does not have ultimate power. There is a deeper and stronger power at work, and the whole system will not 
last. It unmasks not just what Jesus and what God will do, but the reality of what's happening in their midst. As the story of the Bible goes forward, obviously Jesus comes on the scene and where Jerusalem did not overflow with goodness, Jesus does overflow with goodness and multiplies it into his followers around him. And so there were these followers of Jesus in the first century, and they were asking that same question. Now, Babylon's no longer the power, but Rome is the power. And they're asking the question, how do we follow Jesus in a culture that desires accumulation and excess and power and superiority? And we see some of these answers in, in places like where Paul is writing to churches in the New Testament. But just like in Jeremiah, this crazy language of seas coming over things and deserts and, and, and Bel, this god of Babylon who's going to have to spit out uh, what he swallowed. We see the same crazy language in Revelation. Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 3. The author of Revelation, as you know, as you guys have been sitting with it, keeps getting these different visions of kind of what's, what's really going on here. And he says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So a woman sitting on some sort of animal that I haven't seen before. There's names all over the animal. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. These are royal colors. And was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. So golden cup filled with not good stuff that she's drinking. And the name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Aren't you glad that name isn't on your forehead? So we've got in Revelation here, this image of this woman sitting on a seven-headed beast and she's drinking and somehow she is Babylon. And then there's one other little point that the author makes a few verses later. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. And if you're a reader in the first century and you're having trouble tracking, all of a sudden this would be a point where you would say, Ah, I have one of those in my pocket. The seven hills Rome sat and was famously known to sit on seven hills. And there was a goddess of Rome uh, called Roma. Not the most creative, but it it wasn't my decision. Um, Roma was the goddess of Rome. And so if you had a Roman coin in your pocket, there was a chance 
uh, and we've got a picture of one here. There's a chance that on one side you might see a profile uh, of an old white guy. Um, this would be the Emperor Vespasian uh, on this coin. And then on the other side, you see the goddess Roma. Roma is a goddess that often signifies war and violence. She signifies wisdom. Uh, and, and what she's sitting on there, now this coin is a little beat up. It's old, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, she's sitting on seven hills. And so if you read this, oh, there's a goddess sitting on seven hills, what the author of Revelation is doing, I believe, is making a caricature of Roma, of the entire Roman state, and saying this state, uh, the state of Rome, which is where all the wealth flows into the city of Rome, the state of Rome, which is built on violence, which, which talks about like the peace of Rome, which, which the peace of Rome it means the Roman army comes in and says, you guys are going to be subject to us, and if you'll fight back, we'll wipe you out, and now we're peaceful, uh, entirely built on violence, uh, excess, luxury, accumulation, all of these sorts of things. And he says, no, 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 no. The author of Revelation says, this is just a caricature. And yes, there's real evil to it, but let's see what it is. Unmask how the society is dedicated to accumulation and power and violence, to this just desire for more and more, this goddess who is drinking a cup uh, filled with abominations and adulteries. And what we see is Rome is a system of disordered desires. A system where these disordered desires just multiply and get bigger and bigger. And in fact, in, in chapter 18... We see Rome is fallen, says fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, but now we've put it together. Babylon really means Rome uh, or really means empire or societies that are focused on violence and accumulation and power. And uh, in 1811, we hear from the merchants of the earth. And it says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And what are the cargoes? Oh, they're the luxuries. They're the wealthy things. They're the way that the society has been after just getting more and more for themselves. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every kind of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages or chariots, and of course, human beings sold as slaves. The, the author is saying systems and empires devoted to accumulation ultimately use people and use them up. And he's unmasking Babylon, unmasking Rome, 
and showing how empty the system is. And that ultimately, this system becomes like what it loves. If it loves accumulation and excess, it becomes as empty as what accumulation can give it. When we were in Costa Rica this summer, uh, we went swimming one day. Uh, went to the ocean. Uh, we're, we live in Colorado, as, as Ryan mentioned, so we don't spend a lot of time in the ocean. We do have family on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And so normally when we go to the ocean uh, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, it feels like a bathtub and waves can get as high as your ankles. Um, and so now we go to the Pacific Ocean in Costa Rica and the beach is gorgeous and there's palm trees and it just looks wonderful. And we go running into the surf totally forgetting that these waves have built up energy over the last thousand miles in the Pacific Ocean before they slam into the shore. And we're like, holy cow, this is not the Gulf of Mexico as we go running in here. But we're, we're brave, uh, and, and myself, my two daughters, my wife, uh, we're still jumping through the waves, kind of getting used to it. Like, this is a lot more power than we're used to jumping through the waves. Because, again, we live in Colorado. We don't know what to do on the beach, so we just kind of throw ourselves up against the waves for a little bit. And then myself and my older daughter are like, this, this is nice with the waves at your knees, but it'll be really nice if it's kind of at your thighs or at your waist, and you're like, this is fun. Oh, it'd be really nice if the waves were deeper. And so we're kind of going deeper and deeper, and then all of a sudden I realize I can't touch anymore and I'm getting kind of pushed around by these waves here. There's a rip current that is pulling us out to sea. And I know uh, in my head, so two, two thoughts go through my head at the same time. One, we've got to get out of this. Uh, the second thought, uh, or it's really three thoughts. The second thought is, hey, I know you're supposed to swim parallel to the shore, but I bet we can make it without doing that. So when, you, when there's a rip current, you're supposed to swim parallel to the shore to get out of that rip current. I'm like, Psh, that's, for, that's for people who don't know what they're doing. We can just swim against the rip current. So we start swimming, and a wave comes and pulls you back out. And I'm like, my daughter's name is Ellis. I'm like, keep swimming, Ellis. Keep going. And she's like, okay. And we're swimming a little bit, and wave comes and pulls us back out and swimming, and then finally, it works. My stupid idea works. We do get back where we're kind of pulling ourselves back. We're enough on the shore uh, or getting close enough uh, where the waves aren't deep and we can, can kind of walk out. And at this point, the lifeguard blows his whistle and comes running at us, and then there's like other lifeguards appearing. I think they were hiding in the sand, and they're coming running at us. Um, and this, for my 14-year-old daughter, is probably the worst part of the entire experience. She's like, everyone on the beach is looking at us uh, as the lifeguards come to save us right after we got out of this rip current. But I tell you that because I believe our society has rip currents that are trying to pull us out to sea. 
It has currents that shape what we value and what we worship and what we love. And so often the church and the church will say, hey, we have to get our doctrine right. We have to get our thinking right. Those sorts of things. But the most alluring idols in our lives are never about false doctrine. The most alluring idols in our lives are about false loves. They're about where our heart is inclined. We as humans are idol makers. Our hearts are made to love and we will create idols out of what we love and then we will dress them up to look nice just like the goddess Roma. And I see it in my own life, and I see it in the lives around me. I can see it on the news, like what's happening in Ukraine or Israel and Gaza, which are all at the root. It's looking for violence and relying on violence to solve problems, and that is Babylon. That is Babylon as, we, as society brings violence to solve problems to things. I can see it, and, and I feel this in my own life when I'm like, I'm going to go buy a new pair of jeans. Where it's the cheapest pair of jeans. Oh, I should buy those. And you know what I don't want to look at? Where those jeans came from. Because there's a good chance that cheap pair of jeans came from a sweatshop in Bangladesh, which is little different than slavery. And I'd, I'd rather not know about that. I'd rather save $10. The currents pulling me out to sea. I feel it. I feel it. Uh, and we see it in, in things like music. And I think of like Taylor Swift and how people uh, throng to her eras to her. And this is not against Taylor Swift. She has a good album and she has other albums too. Um, and uh, I know people, but you see, uh, you see these people so excited uh, about Taylor Swift. And, and at the center of that, and at the center of most pop music or most uh, music in general that we listen to is this idea romance either will fill me or is the reason that I'm unhappy. And it's like, no, 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 no. That, your allegiance and what you value and worship is all wrong. I see it in sports and how we align ourselves to tribes. And I, again, I do this. Um, and, and we align ourselves to different tribes and we're like, that other tribe, they're bad people. Uh, I don't like them, or my team lost, and now I'm upset for the rest of the day. Or we see it much beyond sports in politics. We, are, we love to give our allegiance to politics and to say, oh yeah, this political party and this political figure, that person is going, he, he or she sees things rightly, and, in, and my allegiance is deepest here, and we forget things like Jesus said, hey, love your enemies. And we're like, no, no, well, he didn't mean Republicans or Democrats or whoever it was. And we give our allegiance to politics. And when we see people worshiping politics and giving their ultimate allegiance to it, or, or clothing that they can get through sweatshops or whatever it is, those are currents pulling us out to sea. Those are Babylon. That is what Babylon looks like in our lives today. 
Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says the crisis with the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism, this fact that we are new creations, and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. Oh, I feel that. I see Babylon in that desire for more that I have, in that desire that I have to say, oh, uh, Gabe is at the center of this story. I see it in relationships. Babylon and the currents of Babylon in relationships. I think of uh, even a few, a few years ago, a lot of the relationships that my wife and I had, we would look around at married couples and say like, why is everybody getting divorces? Like, what is happening uh, in the lives around us? And we'd be with married couples, and they'd be, like, sniping at each other. And we're like, what, what is happening? People keeping score. I see Babylon in the way that we work in the U.S. The burnout culture, the fact that I am made only to be productive. And I feel this system constantly saying, hey, Gabe, I know you worked all day and just had dinner, but you should probably work some more. Because then people will say you're productive, and that is where you can get your ultimate value. That is what you ultimately love. I see Babylon in places where I get dopamine hits on social media. As I said, allegiance around a team or a tribe. And in Revelation 17, Babylon is a reminder that these alluring idols in our lives will be unmasked one day. These alluring idols do not hold ultimate power. Revelation 17 and 18 is not a condemnation of individuals. It is a condemnation of a system that is pulling God's people out to sea. An apocalypse is, a, is an unveiling that God is letting this system fall in on itself. Amen, hallelujah. Amen, hallelujah. That is right. What systems do you feel are shaping you? What systems are pulling you out to sea? It's easy to say, well, what do we do about this? While Jesus was here, when he saw crowds, uh, I want to look at how he responded. And in Matthew 5, it talks about Jesus walking and seeing the crowds. And his disciples were with him. And so what Jesus does is he goes up on a mountain. And he sits down because uh, uh, what a rabbi would do or a teacher would do when he was signaling it was time to teach is sit down. His disciples came around him and the crowds are around him. And Jesus starts to redefine who's part of his system. 
And he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, or those who mourn, or the meek, the merciful, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I am going to redefine who's in this, and it's going to be centered on me. Rather than building a wall around things, you, this, my system, my community will be centered on me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this new set of values of generosity and forgiveness and love and says, this is what my community and system is about but we can't forget what he also did at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And hear these words. He said, you are the light of the world. This ragtag group of people that he was talking to. And here again, you this morning, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, all of you together, you are my city where goodness will multiply and overflow. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they set it on a table and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world. The new city And so often, the call for us is not to grit our teeth and say, how do I go against the currents of Babylon, but to remember who Jesus made me and is making me, the light of the world. (laughs) And so, this week and this season, a couple things that I think is I hope that myself and that all of us can continue to ask, where are these currents pulling me? And the two places I see that most are with my time, my calendar. Does my calendar show that I most value and worship God? And does my money show that I most value and worship God? Or does it show something else. And I think it gives us, as we remember that we are the light of the world, a chance to also try new practices. Not to, it's hard, I think, to say, oh yeah, I'm going to devote to this new practice for the rest of my life, uh, but to try new practices, practices of generosity or community, practices where you say, oh yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have dinner with people that I love, and then after that, I'm not going to get back on work uh, and do more work because that doesn't ultimately give me ultimate value. That's a culture of burnout. And, and maybe for you, it's getting up early, and maybe it's hard to read the Bible, but you're like, I'm going to just listen to some worship music in the mornings, and that's going to be a, a reminder to orient my day to God. What are practices that you can put in place because you are the light of the world standing against Babylon? As God is with you in this. 
And when we all do this together as a community, it multiplies and multiplies. Just like we saw in Genesis chapter 4, these things multiply together and goodness overflows into this community, into the relationships around you, and into the broader world. And so may we see Babylon for what it is in our lives. May we be rid of its empty loves. And may we value and love the way of Jesus as lights in this world. Let me pray for us. Father, Continue to open our eyes. Continue to shape our imaginations. Show us the currents of Babylon that are pulling us out to sea. And may we, with each other, step out of those currents and live as you have created us, as your lights, as your city. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.